Hello, I'm Sharon Krauss, and this is Preternatural Investigations, a podcast about things that are strange but not too strange, the marvellous things that lie between the mundane and the miraculous. I'm a musician with a background in academic philosophy, a rationalist who believes there is magic, mystery and meaning to be found in the world around us. My title nods towards Ludwig Wittgenstein, and my approach owes something to William James's inquiries into religious experience and Mark Fisher's explorations of the weird and the eerie. Come with me into the realm of the preternatural. Episode 4 Fictional Magic and Real Magic. Of the things that seem enchanted and magical to me, that evoke wonder, some do so, I realise, as a result of fictional portrayals of magic I've encountered, either in childhood or later in life. In this episode, I'll start by looking at magic as it's characterised in children's literature, drawing out some themes in the work of writers, including Susan Cooper and Penelope Lively. My Journey's End will be Summer Isle, the setting for 1970s cult horror film The Wicker Man. There are two broad categories of magic we encounter in fiction. Low-key, subtle magic on the one hand, and sensational, supernatural magic on the other. The sensational kind is what most people think of when they think of magic. Harry Potter-style conjurations, a wave of a magic wand bringing about a dramatic and impossible change, fairy godmothers turning pumpkins and mice into coaches and horses. This kind of magic is clearly far from real, and watching a Disney adaptation of a fairy tale or reading a Harry Potter story seems to be all about escapism and fantasy. With the more subtle magic, things are different, though. Here, fictional magic opens our eyes to the existence of real, preternatural magic. Let me give some examples. The magic of music. Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising tells the story of Will Stanton's coming of age as an old one. On the morning of his 11th birthday, Will finds the world transformed and charged with magic. The first sign of the change is the music he hears. It beckoned him, lilting and insistent. Delicate music, played by delicate instruments that he could not identify, with one rippling, bell-like phrase running through it in a gold thread of delight. There was in this music so much of the deepest enchantment of all his dreams and imaginings that he woke smiling in pure happiness at the sound. This theme recurs throughout the book and Cooper writes beautifully about how evocative and enchanting music can be. Here's another passage. The clear husky sound of the flute fell through the air like bars of light and filled Will with a strange, aching longing, a sense of something waiting far off that he could not understand. 
Here, the music heralds the opening of a portal that takes Will back in time. When Will's brother Paul, a talented musician, is given an old flute to play, Will is again spellbound. This was his music, his enchantment, the same eerie, faraway tone that he heard always and then always lost at those moments in his life that mattered most. The idea of music signalling something magical or casting a spell is a common one. The story of the Pied Piper who enchants first the rats of Hamlin and then the village children with his music is another tale that conveys the power music has to beguile. Then there is the Piper at the Gates of Dawn scene in The Wind and the Willows in which Rat and Mole go out in the moonlight on Midsummer's Night and encounter the god Pan. As the moon sets and the sky starts to lighten, Rat hears a sound he describes as beautiful and strange and new, saying, It has roused a longing in me that is pain, and nothing seems worthwhile but just to hear that sound once more and go on listening to it forever. Eventually, Mole hears the music too. Breathless and transfixed, the Mole stopped rowing as the liquid run of that glad piping broke on him like a wave, caught him up and possessed him utterly. These stories and others like them led me to experience music as magical from an early age, and I dreamed of becoming a musician and being able to experience this magic for myself at will, as well as sharing it with others. I think anyone who has been deeply moved by music can relate to this kind of experience and recognise that there's something true being conveyed by these stories, that there is magic in music, that music can transport us, lead us into a magical realm. magic of the natural world. The secret garden and the wild wood as places where magic happens are strong themes in children's magical fiction. In Francis Hodgson Burnett's The Secret Garden, three children, Mary, Dickon and Colin, enter a neglected garden, tend it and bring it back to life. In the process, spoiled, selfish Mary and crabby, bedridden Colin undergo transformations. Most dramatically, as the decayed garden is weeded and replanted, Colin, who has not walked for years and is assumed to be a cripple, gains the confidence to walk and regains vitality. In a chapter called Magic, Colin tells Mary that there is magic in the garden. The magic is a game he's playing, a kind of scientific experiment he's conducting. Even if it isn't real magic, Colin said, we can pretend it is. 
but the magic is real. Burnett describes the green buds that appear and unfurl in the wilderness, the seeds the children planted, growing as if fairies had tended them, the roses tangled round the sundial, wreathing the tree trunks and hanging from their branches, climbing up the walls and spreading over them with long garlands falling in cascades. The garden teems with life where there was none. As part of Colin's experiment, he leads Mary and Dickon, together with the gardener, Ben Weatherstaff, in an improvised ritual. Colin suggested they should all sit cross-legged under the tree, which made a canopy. Mistress Mary felt solemnly enraptured. Dickon held his rabbit in his arms, and perhaps he made some charmer's signal no one heard, for when he sat down, cross-legged like the rest, the crow, the fox, the squirrels, and the lamb slowly drew near and made part of the circle. Once they are sitting in this magic circle, Colin starts to chant, the sun is shining, the sun is shining, that is the magic. The flowers are growing, the roots are stirring, that is the magic. Being alive is the magic, being strong is the magic. The magic is in me, the magic is in me. It is in me, it is in me, it's in every one of us. Colin's chant repeated over and over, together with the sunlight streaming through the trees, the bees humming in the blossom and the magic of the place send all of them into a kind of trance. Afterwards, Colin announces that he's going to walk around the garden and does so slowly with help from the others and rest stops along the way. He is convinced that if he comes to the garden every day and lets it work its magic on him, he'll gain strength and be walking and running like a normal boy before long. Sure enough, that's what happens. The idea that nature is magic and has healing powers is just one of the things this story conveys. Colin's experiment is also an experiment in the power of the mind, the magic of the imagination. Another theme that's threaded through this story is the magic the animal kingdom holds for us. Dickon has a gentle way with animals, and as a result, animals trust him and come to him. For those of us living in cities, a fleeting glimpse of a wild animal is all we tend to get, and there's a thrill to seeing or hearing an owl in the night sky coming upon a fox or a badger, or hearing a cuckoo's call. The numerous children's stories in which talking animals feature, C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, The Wind in the Willows, John Maysfield's The Midnight Folk and The Box of Delights being good examples, are conveying something of the magic we experience when we communicate with animals. In the real world, Whenever we succeed in befriending and being befriended by an animal, this is, if anything, more mysterious and magical than the way Lucy, Edmund, Susan and Peter 
become friends with talking animals in Narnia. Communication is straightforward if animals are able to speak our language. The real magic is finding ways to communicate with animals who don't do so. From keeping pets to training hawks or working with sheepdogs on a farm, we find ways to communicate with animals. We find ourselves loving them and being loved by them. Given how reliant we are on verbal language, this seems a rare kind of magic. Folk elements, the magic of masks, dance, ritual and carnival. Perhaps it's not surprising that masks have the power to evoke mystery. A mask is, after all, something designed to hide a face and make the wearer mysterious. By being so obviously designed to hide what is behind it, a mask becomes a symbol of the mysterious the unknown. As well as masks being used as devices to create or represent mystery, they have a magic of their own. They become tools for shape-shifting or transforming. Humans put on animal masks and start to behave differently. The wildness within us is unleashed. A story in which this happens is Penelope Lively's The Wild Hunt of Hagworthy. The vicar of Hagworthy decides to revive the village's traditional horn dance, in which the dancers wear antlered masks as they dance. When the children chosen to do the dance put on these masks, though, the dance starts to turn into a hunt, and they become possessed with the energy of the wild hunt. Their faces behind the masks are described as strangely distorted, bestial, and they become hunters eager for prey. What happens to the children of Hagworthy is like what happens to the attendees of Carnival. Putting on a mask, hiding, or even temporarily losing our identity, we become something other the normal rules of interaction are suspended, and this is exciting, if sometimes dangerous. In Lively's story, there's a wildness just below the surface, waiting to be unleashed. The same is true of all of us. It's not just the masks that have magical power in this story. It's also the ritual of the dance. Penelope Lively's fictional horn dance was based on the Abbot's Bromley horn dance, a day of ritual dance that happens every year in the Staffordshire village of Abbot's Bromley. This is a tradition thought to date back hundreds of years, and the antlers used in the dance have been carbon dated to the 11th century. The dancing is understated, and the dancers are down to earth, chatting and joking with each other between bouts of dancing not the least bit serious or mysterious. By the end of the day, though, after following them and their musicians from one spot to another in the village, 
watching the same simple steps performed over and over, antlers held aloft and click-clacking together as the dancers step forward and back. Something mysterious happens. You're hypnotised and it feels like you've been taken out of time. This is something I'll return to in a later episode. In contrast to the fictional magical themes I've been looking at, examples of subtle magic, are the magical themes that instead of leading us to engage with the world and find magic within it, lead us to escape from its apparent monotony into worlds more glamorous and spectacular. The magic I call supernatural, though often harmless and contributing to a dramatic and exciting story, can sometimes lead us astray. If on reading a magical tale or watching a film with a magical theme, we end up feeling glum about our own drab lives or disengaged from reality, then something is not right. There are tales that inspire and strengthen us and tales that disempower and hinder us. If the magical tales you read focus on powerful magical objects that once obtained will enable you to get anything you want, or if they focus on special magical powers that some people are born with and that the rest of us can never obtain, then the myths you're absorbing as you read are disempowering ones that perpetuate a kind of elitism or hierarchy with those chosen to be magical in a superior position to the rest of us muggles. If a young girl reads only those fairy tales in which the heroines are beautiful and do nothing more than wait for fairy godmothers or handsome princes to rescue them, the chances of her growing into a woman capable of standing on her own two feet are diminished. The ability to find magic and meaning in the world around us is threatened by another similar myth, a cosmic myth of supernatural magic. There's a parallel between the someday my prince will come myth and the idea that if we're good, God will rescue us in the end and take us into his kingdom. Instead of waiting for a mortal man to make our lives meaningful, we look to a supernatural deity to do so. Doing either of these things can lead us to disengage with the things that are truly capable of grounding meaning in our lives, in the here and now, the theme I'll be returning to throughout is the idea of a kind of exoticism about meaning and magic. The assumption that we cannot expect to find meaning and magic in ourselves and in the world around us, so must instead look to find them somewhere else. To God or to spiritual leaders, to more exotic, authentic or nature-based cultures, or to the dim and distant past. The idea that the past contains mysteries and magic we lack in the present will be the focus of my next episode. The magical themes I've identified in children's fiction 
are all to be found in the heady cocktail that is the world of Summer Isle in Robin Hardy's folk horror classic, The Wicker Man. Subtle magic is not just for children. As an adult, this film thrilled and entranced me, and as a result, I was unprepared for its horrifying ending. What is it that thrills us when we watch a film like The Wicker Man? listen to folk songs like the Ballad of Tamlin, or read mysterious or magical tales. Someone might think that the thrill is caused by horror elements, but I think that's mistaken. It's not horror per se that thrills us, but mystery and magic. In The Wicker Man, I will argue, it's what happens in the main body of the film the world that is so vividly conjured up with the help of music, nature and folk elements that is thrilling, not the horror of the ending, which has an entirely different and chilling effect on us. When we talk about a film or story being dark, we mean one of two things. There's dark in the mysterious sense, and dark in the horrifying or evil sense. The first kind of darkness piques our curiosity, attracts us and may thrill us, whilst the second repels and chills us, though it may also fascinate us. Horror as a genre deals in both, with horror proper veering towards the latter, and the subgenre of folk horror seeming to favour the former. The Wicker Man is full of the first kind of darkness, up until the climax, at which point things take a turn for the sinister and horrifying, and the second kind takes over. It's the first kind, the mysterious, thrilling kind, that I'm interested in. Different things thrill different people, and it would be wrong to assume that everyone who watches The Wicker Man would be thrilled by it in the same way. What thrills me about the world of the inhabitants of Summer Isle may horrify others. Those with a similar religious outlook to that of Sergeant Howie, for example, and leave others unmoved. Those who would rather watch something more graphically gory, for example. To be thrilled by a film like this, one must be receptive to a certain kind of magic. So what is it about the world of the Wicker Man that thrills? From the moment Sergeant Howie lands on Summer Isle, he is, and we are, sucked into a strange and mysterious world. The world of the inhabitants of Summer Isle springs to life and is one of the most convincing and realistic fantasy worlds depicted on film. The film is littered with symbols and motifs carefully chosen to create a rich tapestry of local pagan lore. Sergeant Howie is brought to shore in a rowing boat with a protective eye painted on its prow. As he approaches the island, a flag with the sun on it flies overhead. The local shop sells chocolate hares and the inn is called the Green Man. There's the maypole the island's schoolboys dance around, whilst the teacher instructs the girls on its phallic symbolism. There are corn dollies and photos of harvest festivals. 
gravestones with strange inscriptions, golden chalices, standing stones, animal masks, carnival costumes, and a hobby horse capering around, gnashing its teeth. We're introduced to the customs and beliefs of the islanders. As well as the maypole dances, there are rituals and invocations. Naked dances around fires or in stone circles and folk remedies. May Day is a carnival with Christopher Lee's charismatic Lord Summer Isle as the Lord of Misrule, leading the procession wearing a dress and a long black wig and brandishing a branch and a scythe. The other islanders wear animal and bird masks and all process to a doomy drum whilst sword dancers dance. The islanders, in Lord Summer Isle's words, have reverence for the music, drama and rituals of the old gods. They have come to love nature and rely on it. In sharp contrast to Sergeant Howie's Presbyterian approach to sex, the islanders treat sex and sexuality as natural, sacred and fun. At the Green Man Inn, Howie finds a rowdy folk session in full swing. The charms of the landlord's daughter Willow are apparent and celebrated, and Willow herself has a sexuality that seems open and innocent, unlike Howie's attitude to sex, which seems prudish and pent up. When she dances, sings and beckons to him, weaving a spell of seduction, it seems generous and benevolent, not the work of an evil temptress. Meanwhile, out in the fields, couples make love in the moonlight, and women dance naked, leaping over flames and singing and chanting. There's bawdiness, lustiness and seduction, but it's not sordid or seedy. It's light-hearted, wild and free. The way these ideas are conveyed is charged and atmospheric. The outdoor scenes are shot in a way that emphasises the pastoral. Sunlight bleeding into the frame, soft shades of green and blue, and has a mildly hallucinogenic quality. Music also plays a large part in conjuring atmosphere. The film's soundtrack weaves in traditional folk songs and tunes and the arrangements are spooky and dirgy in places and celebratory in others. In order for the film's story to have a climax, there had to be a chilling twist and a horror lurking beneath the surface. Howie's suspicions are vindicated when he finds out the fate the islanders have in store for him, and the film, in its ending, becomes a horror film in the normal sense. What it's been until that point, though, is a spellbinding portrayal of a magical world. Anthony Schaffer, one of the screenplay's co-writers, seems to see the community of Summer Isle in a positive light. Reflecting on the film, when interviewed by Mark Commode for the 2001 documentary, burnt offering the cult of the wicker man. He says, I look forward to a day when we are pagans again, 
I think we'd have a much better time of it. I think we'd have a lot more fun, a lot more belief, a lot more faith, a lot more immediacy with the things unseen. As well as being magical and atmospheric, the world we enter feels real, and that's an important part of what makes it so exciting. That it is the intention of the filmmakers to convey a sense of reality is evident from the blurb that appears on the screen at the start of the film. The producer would like to thank the Lord of Summer Isle and the people of his island off the west coast of Scotland for this privileged insight into their religious practices and for their generous cooperation in the making of this film. What makes the world of the Wicker Man thrilling is this combination of magic and reality. That by presenting us with such a rich and convincing portrayal of a magical world, we come to feel that magic is real. What could be more thrilling than that? If this was a fantasy world we inhabited temporarily, an escapist thrill we got whilst suspending our disbelief in magic, afterwards coming back down to earth with a bump and remembering how mundane and unmagical life is, it would be a cheap thrill. But like the subtle magic portrayed in the children's fiction I started with, there are things about the way the folk of Summer Isle live that we can draw on in our own lives. Instead of a contrast opening up between the fictional magic we see on screen and the mundane world we live in, our experience of such portrayals of magic can affect the way we experience the everyday world and enable us to experience the world around us as magical. C.S. Lewis makes this point in talking about enchanted forests in children's fiction. The child does not despise real woods because he has read of enchanted woods. The reading makes all woods a little enchanted. When fiction reminds us that life can be magical and mysterious then, that nature, music, ritual, love and sexuality are sources of magic, mystery and wonder. It's not surprising that it thrills us. The Wicker Man is particularly rich in this kind of magic and that's what makes its thrill so powerful. Thrilling us in this way and in the process reminding us how magical life can be. Inspiring us to find magic in our lives is surely one of the things creators of this kind of magical world hope to do. I'm Sharon Krauss, and this has been Preternatural Investigations. <laughs>